Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew. Today I'll be talking with Ava Reed, the author of The Wolf and the Woodsman, a fast-paced debut fantasy novel based on Eastern European folklore. Here is my review. The Wolf, in the title, refers to a pagan woman given to the dreaded woodsman to keep her village safe. Evike is part of a tithe sent to satisfy the king who demands a quota of witches every year. The impoverished villages hidden in the woods are inhabited by women with magical powers who worship the old gods. The woodsman, the king's religious paramilitary order, brings selected women to the capital, where their eventual fates are a mystery, but surely not good. Evike, the metaphorical wolf of the story, is an illiterate, angry young woman who's been taunted by the villagers. She's also not a witch. She's clad in a witch's wolf pelt, sent with the woodsmen so that the true witches can remain safe to guard the village. When misfortune besets her guards and only the one-eyed Gaspar remains to guard her. She learns that neither she or he are who they appear to be. The trials of their journey reveal latent magic in her and lay bare his misery as the less favored son of the king. Though Gaspar's piety and rigidity infuriate her, she finds herself drawn to him both physically and emotionally. As Evica journeys to the north, and then to her country's capital, meeting her estranged father and eventually the king himself, she learns that the world is a complex place with much more at stake than she ever realized. So to introduce the book, I'm going to let Ava read a little bit herself, and then we'll start off on the interview. The trees have to be tied down by sunset. When the woodsmen come, they always try to run. The girls who are skilled forgers fashion little iron stakes to drive through the roots of the trees and into the earth, anchoring them in place. With no gift for forging between the two of us, Boroka and I haul a great length of rope, snaring any trees we pass in clumsy loops and awkward knots. When we finish, it looks like the spider web of some giant creature, something the woods might cough up. The thought doesn't even make me shiver. Nothing that might break through the tree line could be worse than the woodsman. Who do you think it will be? Boroka asks. The light of the setting sun filters through the patchy cathedral of tree cover, dappling her face. Tears are pearled in the corners of her eyes. Virag, I say, with any luck. Boroka's mouth twists. Though I suspect halfway through their journey, the woodsman will tire of her babbling about weather omens and dump her in the black lake. You don't mean that. Of course I don't. I wouldn't wish the woodsman on anyone, no matter how much they lashed me how meanly they chided me, or how many hours I spent scraping their cold goulash out of yesterday's pots. But it's easier to loathe Virag than to worry I might lose her. Hi, Eva, and thanks for doing that reading for us. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'll jump right into the questions, and we're going to start off with the heroine of your story, Evie K. She has three important possessions. She has very little, but she has these things. <laughs> a wolf robe, and in that she carries in the pockets a braid of hair and a gold coin. 
Can you explain the value of each item for your readers? Yeah. So the wolf hook is something that is really forced upon her. Um, it's not something that she really considers truly her own. I think it's a comfort to some degree because it reminds her of home, but it's also, you know, she describes it as being heavy and burdensome because it's a reminder of this sacrifice she's been forced to make. And it's a reminder of what she can never have, you know, the acceptance of her village, that sense of belonging, and the power that the white cloak represents. Um, excuse me. So the braid of hair is her mother's, um, which her, was given to her by her mother before her mother was taken by the woodsmen. So that kind of symbolizes her grief and the very, very personal vendetta that she holds against the woodsmen. It's kind of this more intimate, personal loathing that, you know, the other girls in her village might not experience um, to the same degree. And the gold coin belongs to her father. Um, and her father is a man that she's, she's never met. And his bloodline, you know, his heritage has, she sees, has cursed her to this powerless and marginalized life. Um, so it's symbolic of kind of both the longing that she feels for a sense of community that she, you know, believes she could potentially have, you know, with her father and her father's people. But it also, you know, carries with it that resentment that she feels towards him because she thinks that he's abandoned her. Um, and I think, you know, eventually the coin is something that importantly serves as a, a point of connection between her and Gashmar. Um, because both of them are outcasts whose, whose bloodlines have relegated them to, you know, quite miserable existences. Mm -hmm. So Eva Kay uh, starts off the novel with very little. None of the possessions we've just mentioned truly belong to her. And even her magic, here's a little bit of a spoiler, she does eventually get some, but it's bestowed by God to be taken if she offends him. What does she have that is completely her own, and how does it serve her in the end? Um, so I would say that EBK actually has several things that belong to her and her alone in the end. And one is, you know, her archery, which is a talent that she cultivated and earned on her own as some way to buy herself, you know, the measure of acceptance in her village. Um, and this is something, obviously, you know, about spoilers, but <laughs> comes in very handy in the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That's just what I was thinking. Has, yeah, she also has something else in the end, um, which is the ability to read and write, um, which no one else in her, in her village has. You know, she learns to spell her own name. She learns that she can to write down the stories that have been told to her so many times. And that's a way for her to kind of indelibly say, you know, I was here, I mattered, what I did made a difference, and, you know, nothing can take that away from her in the end. And words are very powerful in your novel, as will be revealed in the latter third of it. They, they mm -hmm. have an innate power, so that's yeah. a very good point about her learning how to read and write. Uh, yeah. She also develops a measure of compassion, and I think that starts off with uh, 
her statement that a bad memory shared between two people carries with it only half the pain. Uh, she states that several times in the narrative. How does this belief influence her interactions with several important people in a novel? Oh, excuse me. I think that, you know, Evie is fundamentally a very lonely person at the outset. Um, she only has one real friend, and that friend is someone who doesn't necessarily understand or relate to her, mm -hmm. you know. And I think this line really speaks to her longing for, you know, exactly that, someone who does understand her. Um, and there's this particular moment where she's, like, trying to get under Gashvar's skin, and she basically says, like, oh, so you do think we're alike after all. Um, and she's just kind of teasing in there, but there's a real desire underneath that, I think, that she's drawn to him because she finally sees someone who's like her, um, someone who understands that kind of pain the mm -hmm. way that she does. Yeah, it's a real enemies to lovers component in a story that a lot of people <laughs> yeah. like. Uh, mm -hmm. Eva Kay is very lonely. She's her only mother figure, as it were, is a very grumpy old woman, V-Rag. <laughs> V-Rag often mm -hmm. beats her, but she does tell her stories. So would you say that Evike has a bond with Virag? And if so, what is the predominant emotion there? Um, so I think that Evike's relationship with Virag is, is much more significant than even she gives it credit for. Um, because it's, it's foundational to the view she has of the world and of herself that you can't trust the people who are supposed to care for you, that the world is a fundamentally unforgiving place, mm -hmm. and you need to protect yourself from it by any means necessary. Um, but by the end of the book, though, you know, Evie does come to the conclusion that she loves Virag, and Virag loves her. Um, and that's because she's learned over the course of the book that you can still love someone who causes you pain, and the pain is in some ways integral to the experience of love. Um, you know, and she says it's, it's not the same kind of love that she feels for Gashbar, for her father, but by the end, she's not so afraid anymore. She's not so afraid of feeling pain, um, so she understands that you can hold, you know, pain and affection at the same time, mm -hmm. and one doesn't necessarily cancel out the other. Speaking of pain, scarring and disfigurement come up often in your novel, and I found it interesting, there seems to be a difference between making a decision to scar yourself or having someone else scar you. Yeah, so disfigurement is like a really common fantasy trope, though you most often see it used in this very like ableist sense to convey like the evilness or the wretchedness of a character. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I'm a person who has significant scarring and a disfigurement, but, you know, they're not, you know, immediately legible the way that gash bars are. Um, I wanted to, you know, interrogate and invert this trope a little bit. Um, so gash bar and the other was then obviously they scar themselves, they disfigure themselves in order to gain power. And initially, EDK doesn't see any kind of difference between someone hurting you and you hurting yourself, which is why she's 
so baffled that Gaspar would do this. Mm-hmm. You know, again, because she lives in a world where any sign of pain is a weakness that will be taken advantage of. So she's sort of like, why on earth would you inflict pain on yourself when the world is already out there doing it to you, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> like she's, it just completely, you know, baffles her. But Gaspar and the other woodsmen, they recognize a difference between self-harm and harm done by others. You know, Gaspar says that losing his eye actually, you know, spoiler, doesn't confer him any kind of magic because it was taken from him by force and mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, a sacrifice willingly given. Um, and sacrifice, you know, in the form of flesh specifically is fundamental to the belief system of the woodsman, to the belief system of the country faith in general. Um, and I, but I think in the end, it kind of concludes that for Gaspar, the self-harm is, it is just external pain turned inward. You know, he has no other way to cope, to gain acceptance, to gain power, you know, uh, you know, love for the people who hate him except by, you know, by scarring himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, that's a pretty, you know, universal narrative about self-harm that's, you know, resonant in contemporary society, too. Although scarring was a sign of bravery in a lot of um, so-called primitive cultures, uh, the ability to withstand pain, to not let pain intimidate you, to not mm-hmm. be frightened of pain. I'm thinking of American Indian rituals that they had. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's interesting. There definitely is a difference between choosing to pain yourself for a greater goal or passively being mm-hmm. unable to protect yourself when someone else is scarring you. So yeah. Evica and Gasper get to know more and more about each other. They have to rely on each other to survive and they begin to trust each other and attraction grows between them. We really only know Gasper as he's described through Evikai. Uh, Evika is a better fighter. She's sexually frank. She often chastises Gaspar for being ashamed of his lust. Uh, do you think traditional gender roles are a little reversed in this story? So I really like this question um, <laughs> because Evika goes between two extremely rigidly gendered worlds. You know, she grows up in a matriarchal society in her home village, and then Mm -hmm. she enters the patriarchal society of the Patrophes and, you know, the larger kingdom. Um, And she doesn't really belong in either of them because in her village, you know, she's alienated from her, you know, alleged gender by virtue of her bloodline. You know, she talks about how she can't, she doesn't participate in, you know, the normal activities of women around the village. You know, she kind of goes off with the men. She kind of exists in this kind of interstitial place. Um, and then in the larger world, you know, she's seen as this pagan, you know, barbarian before she's seen, you know, as a woman. Um, and in a sense, I think that, yes, it is a reverse of gender roles and that EVK is more, you know, openly sexual. But I don't know if I was, like, necessarily thinking of that specifically when I was writing the book. You know, EVK, she's She's more bald about her desires because she was raised in a non-monogamous culture. You know, they don't have a traditional family structure. Mm-hmm. So there's no shame, you know, associated with sex. Um, she's more ashamed of 
you know, feeling a real emotional attachment to Gashbar, you know, because he's her, he's her enemy. Um, whereas Gashbar was raised in a culture that practices, you know, strict monogamy, and he's, you know, in this holy order where chastity is a requirement. So his sexual desires are just, you know, they're another reminder to him that he's failed in performing the role um, that's been expected of him. Uh, so I think, like, yes, it is definitely like a reversal of gender roles, but it's also about two characters who just, you know, fail at performing gender the way that they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gaspar does come from the dominant culture of the land, which practices patri mm-hmm. faith and uh, mm-hmm. worships the Principatrias, I liked that mm-hmm. amana faced <laughs> deity and so there's lots mm-hmm. of rules in that culture uh, cultures mm-hmm. that worship different gods are marginalized and maligned by those who practice the patri faith for instance the mm-hmm. pagan women of the village as you said they're looked on as barbarians and they're judged and mistrusted for their magic however what's interesting is the woodsmen actually also have powers that come from serving their god and sacrificing their flesh. So even though their adherence of this rigid anti-magical religion, they still practice magic to me. And so I wonder what kind of distinction they make mentally. How do they make that palatable among themselves that, that they also use magic powers? And how yeah, do they justify so, it? Yeah, so this is, you know, one of the, I think, kind of fundamental. This is kind of one of the first ideas um, that I have in the rest of the book kind of spawned from that because this is fundamentally, you know, a book about faith. And, mm-hmm. you know, faith takes many forms. And so to be a good, you know, patrician, you have to perform this unquestioning devotion and readiness to sacrifice yourself in any way that your God sees that. So power is not your birthright by any means. You know, it's something you have to earn, you know, through self-flagellation and and debasement. Um, And it's not, you know, a one-for-one comparison. And I was actually inspired, you know, by as much by Christianity as I was by the cult of Mithras, which is this pre-Christian Roman cult. Very fascinating. Mm, Okay. Look it up. Yeah, but I was this in this aspect. I was really inspired by you know the Catholic idea of original sin, where you are essentially born in a state of immorality and you have to spend your entire life you know making up for that, mm-hmm. apologizing. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to love God even though God hates you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and they call it you know the reason that they call it power rather than magic is just. It's rhetorical, you know, they need a way to distinguish between, you know, what they do from what the pagans do, but it's essentially just a semantic difference that's, you know, been created by political powers and political pressures. That's um, exactly what it seemed like. It's it's just like a, they take control of the narrative and reword it to make mm-hmm. this artificial distinction between themselves and yeah. the cultures they say they despise. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I mean, you see so many times that what the pagans do and what the churches and the, what the woodsmen do are really exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be explicit about that. You know, you don't see Gashbar doing anything. You know, he 
he starts fires, you know, he heals himself, you know, these are all of his, you know, this is the same exact, you know, magic that the people in EBK's village have, which, but for them, you know, they don't have this kind of, you know, the same idea of original sin or like debasement. So they see it as, you know, very much a birthright. It's something that mm-hmm. you're just entitled to by being assigned female birth within the tribe. You know, you have to like train and practice, um, but there's no physical debasement required. Spoiler alert, at least EBK initially thinks. Um, Though she, you know, she later comes to understand that even pagan magic requires a personal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, and I, I decided to make that the case because I think that it speaks to one of the core themes that belonging to a larger group does require some sort of sacrifice, you know. Hmm. EVK realizes that Virag is, she's okay with giving up the one wolf girl, you know, every year or so because it keeps the village as a whole safe. The woodsmen are okay with, you know, cutting off some of their small body parts because it makes them more powerful. And I'm not, I'm really not making any kind of value judgment about that. Um, You know, pain and sacrifice are a necessary part of belonging and even of love. And it can be taken to, you know, extremes and it can be, misused and abused but we all make sacrifices for the good of a larger whole and and for the people that we care about well and it just occurred to me symbolically too uh like if there was power in cutting off an appendage like a finger or something Mm -hmm. to belong to a larger group it also speaks Mm -hmm. to how we smooth our rough edges so that we don't Mm -hmm. stand out and how we might um how we might monitor how we speak or how we dress, mm-hmm. how that's kind of, a, in a sense, almost the same as cutting off or dismounting mm-hmm. a part of ourselves that might extrude too much. That's really interesting. Yeah. What you said just, uh, that clicked for me. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's, you know, also shown that EVK is, you know, she's so readily given up because she is different, you know. Mm-hmm because she doesn't belong. She's, you know, and EVK does, she makes the kind of symbolic connection between, you know, the king kind of allowing, you know, some pagans to exist because they, you know, imbue him with both, you know, actual and symbolic power and EVK being given up, you know, in service of that. Um, And all of that is kind of in service of creating you know, a nation or a culture that is, you know, that is kind of holistic and homogenous, even though we know that that's, that's a fiction, you know, that's a myth. Yeah, speaking of the king, this is not part of the questions, but shall we tell the readers what his crown is made of, or shall we let them find out for <laughs> themselves? Sure, yeah, just, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> his crown um, is made of fingernails that he's taken from those with magical powers but that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) (laughs) so you've dwelled into hungarian and jewish folk tales to enrich your world i noticed there's a recurring motif about creatures that appear harmless but are actually very dangerous they're black chickens a nude young girl wandering the woods and a kindly old woman stirring stew Each of those are revealed as 
creatures or monsters with ravenous appetites. What function do you think these types of folk tales served? Yeah, well, Evie Kate does, you know, she says that she thinks that the only creatures who have managed to survive this kind of purging of the kingdom are the ones who have been able to use deception, you know, to kind of hide their true form. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot about deception and disguise writ large, and it's actually something the whole plot hinges upon. You know, Evie Kate conceals her identity, um, you know, as she passes herself off as a seer, but she also, you know, conceals her, you know, usually heritage, um, you know, the form of survival. Gashbar, you know, for a short time conceals his identity from her, but he also, you know, does his best to conceal, you know, his parentage and his, mm -hmm. you know, bloodline for his survival. And, you know, for both of them, the survival completely depends on appearing as something that they're very much not. Um, and I wanted, I really did want from the beginning, you know, this world and its folklore and its fairy tales to be, you know, kind of, you know, secretly dangerous because I think in a meta sense they are, you know, there's this really ugly underbelly to pretty much every European fairy tale you can yes, think of. You yes, know. there are. <laughs> Whether it's like, you know, the anti-Semitism in Rumpelstiltskin or, you know, the cautionary tale about pedophilia in Little Red Riding Hood or, mm -hmm. you know, the parables of like familial domestic abuse in the juniper tree. There's something, you know, festering under the surface of all of these stories. You know, these, these fairy tales, they have, you know, figurative and literal teeth. To me, those stories just speak of a deep, distrust of the other that oh mm -hmm. th this may look harmless but who you know who knows and that distrust mm -hmm. is also um of course in your novel uh, the predominant culture has that distrust of anyone any other culture that's different such mm -hmm. as the yahuli who mm -hmm. are often persecuted and blamed for anything that goes wrong mm-hmm yeah, definitely. And that's, you know, that's self-protective because this is a country that is very much defining itself. So they're very insecure and protective mm -hmm. over these narratives that are still being shaped about their own country. You know, so anything that kind of appears to threaten that is, you know, something that needs to be stamped out immediately, mm -hmm. um, you know, because they are very much in the process of nation building. And that's, you know, very delicate and challenging and, you know, up for contestation, you know. Yeah, that was a focus of your studies at Brandeis, wasn't it? The uh, nation? At Barnard, yeah. Barnard, <laughs> sorry. Just uh, mm -hmm. thinking back about, well, how do people find out a little more about you and which college you went to, <laughs> which I had wrong? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's a good way to follow you on social media? So I'm most you know, active on Instagram, and it's at Ava Reed. Um, and my Twitter, which I use very sporadically, is at A. Simone Reed. I also have a website, avasreed.com, which I really should be better about updating. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's all the social media that I kind of regularly use. Okay, so if you're not updating your website, why don't you tell us what you're working on these days then? So, yeah, I have a second book with 
Harbor Voyage area that's slated for next summer. And mm -hmm. I mentioned the juniper tree, and this is actually, you know, this is actually a retelling of the juniper tree, but it's set in Victorian era, Odessa, Ukraine. Um, and that's actually a good portion of my of my family actually immigrated from Odessa um, in that time period. So mm -hmm. it has been kind of fun to like repurpose these like apocryphal family stories and to do more research about that time period and, and you know, and the people who live there. Um, and if you don't know <laughs> the juniper tree, only look it up if you have a very strong stomach. Ooh, um, because okay. it's considered, it's considered, yeah, one of, it's considered the darkest, you know, Grimm's fairy tale. So it's not, it's not very well known for that reason, but I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, Eva's novels uh, does have a quite a following, but it is just for anyone who's listening. It's not really intended to be a YA novel. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. that's definitely important <laughs> to remember. There's a lot of <laughs> I, I constantly see reviews reminding people, like just so you know, this is not YA. You know, there's a lot of you know, there's gore, there's body horror, mm -hmm. there's obviously, mm -hmm. you know, themes of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, <laughs> so, you know, tread lightly. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. Of course, this was great. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Ava Reed about her debut novel, The Wolf and the Woodsman. Next up next month will be my interview with P. J. Lee Clark for his novel, A Master of Gin, which takes place in an alternate steampunk caro. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-A-U-T-H-O-R. Till next time.